This morning we will, uh, looking at the story of David and Bathsheba, which is told to us over two chapters in Second Samuel, uh, chapter 11 and 12. And in order to give you uh, a good uh, covering of that story, we're going to read portions of both those uh, chapters. So Second uh, Samuel, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 reads... In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they uh, ravaged the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman Conceived, And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Down in verse 14 of that same chapter. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. In chapter 12, we'll begin with verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to wit to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock and herd to prepare uh, for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. May God help us to understand this, his most precious word. This morning we continue our uh, journey through what does it mean for a Christian to grow? What we have called renew. And this particular morning we hope to look specifically at this idea of repentance. And we know that 500 years ago, Martin Luther was concerned over the church in the middle 
uh, ages or in medieval times had moved away from this whole concept of repentance. And so when he tacked the 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Castle uh, uh, chapel, he wrote the very first complaint, the very first problem he considered that the church had for the past uh, 500 years was that all of the Christian's life is one of repentance. And therefore, Martin Luther believed that repentance wasn't an occasion for sorrow. It was an occasion for joy. Because Martin Luther knew that we don't repent in order to be forgiven. We repent because we already are forgiven. Forgiven. And I think that's an important difference. We don't rush into the confessional because we need forgiveness. We rush into the confessional because we are forgiven. And the only person that really is being changed by our confession is us. There are two types of messages that preachers preach. Uh, One is one we think you need to hear. And the other one, one we think we need to hear. This is one of the latter. I have taken the Myers-Briggs personality test a number of times. If you don't know what that is, it is a uh, test that is given based on Carl Jung's uh, theory of how the mind works in the personality. And Myers-Briggs associates 16 different personality uh, possibilities in in the world. And if you want to know what mine is, it's INTJ. That is... My approach to life is one is an introvert. I don't get energy from people. I get energy from being apart from people. I'm intuitive when I uh, face challenges and problems. I uh, approach through thinking and I'm very judgmental. I know that's not what that one means, but it's how I took it. It explains so much about me. But one of the things that you can do with the Myers-Briggs that everybody has done some research, and I don't know the science behind this. There may be no science behind this, but it sounds cool. That is, they have looked for famous people who have the same personality type that you might have. And so the INTJ people are people like, uh, at least according to these folks, uh, Dwight David Eisenhower, that always sounds good. C.S. Lewis, getting a little spiritual. Martin Luther, hero of the faith. But I'm also in the same category with Lance Armstrong, Ted Kaczynski, if you don't know who Ted Kaczynski is, but also Walter White from Breaking Bad. Now, I have no idea how they gave a personality test to a fictional character. But me and Walter... We're twins. I didn't know that this mattered until you understand the point. And that is that in all of us, there is the potential for great heroism, but also for unspeakable horrors. We tend to, and and that's what I've been looking at as I watched the news of the last couple of three weeks, how we have tried to turn Larry Nasser into a monster. In fact, it is one of the very common themes of the 150 women who testified. You're a monster. You're evil. And though that is true that he is evil, 
But one of the things that you and I need to recognize is that there are no monsters in the world, just humans. Because what he did, we are capable of doing. See, monsters allow us to explain behavior without admitting potential. That is, we don't want to admit that lies in the human heart of every human heart is both Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That's why Myers-Loff Wolf will say that forgiveness flounders because I exclude myself from my enemies and from the human race because that's how I can objectify, that's how I can explain the things that they have done. Nobody has exhibited that more than David. A man after God's own heart, God says, and yet he falls into unspeakable horrors of adultery and murder, both flowing from the heart sin of the abuse of power. That is, the murder that he plans for Uriah and the affair, the the, and that's too nice to say, but the abuse of Bathsheba are the result of the abuse of his own power. The Valley of Vision, if you haven't read that beautiful work, calls human beings, calls us Christians, a poor gospel-abusing sinner. David is a poor gospel-abusing sinner. And that is why he has great acts of heroism, but also great acts of horror in the same person. We know that because we have the story of Goliath, where he takes on the persecutor, the tormentor of his people and frees them by killing the giant. Great acts of heroism. But we also know that in this case, he steals Bathsheba from her father and her husband, We also know that he has his friend Uriah killed. And so as we approach this text in the time that we have, I want you to think in four big categories for you. First one is that none of us are immune. We can't go anywhere this morning in this message if we cannot admit that I am not immune to what David did. Because the moment you say that's impossible... You're already dead meat because you can't see it coming and you don't recognize your own heart. I don't recognize my own heart. So the first one is none of us are immune. We can't do this alone. Hypocrisy and faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. They actually reside in the heart of the same person. And then the good news comes in in an unspeakable grace. None of us are immune. None of us are immune to what David did. I have in my office, in my closet, I used to hang it up, but I'm so embarrassed by this picture that it stays in the closet in my office. And it's of my graduating class in seminary. There were 40 men in my graduating class. My guess is Pastor Dan's class is going to be the same way and Pastor Greg's are going to be the same way. Half of the men that are in that picture are no longer in the ministry. Over the last... 25, 27 years, I've watched men one by one fade out of that picture because of either sins they have done or sins that were done to them. 
men that you would think, if there's anybody that could survive, it would be pastors. Though I have great reason to believe this would never happen to me, I also have to admit that the potential is in my heart. What David did, and truly worse, is the potential of any human heart. David wrote half the Psalms. He's one of the first worship leaders for God's people in worship. He is the man after God's own heart. The point is this. Even good guys fall. Abraham was the father of our faith. When every Jew wanted to talk about the source or the beginning, I don't mean that as the creation of the faith, but the first person who came out of the land of the Chaldeans where other gods or no god was worshipped, comes Abram, who becomes Abraham. And I just want you to know, our scriptures tell us he was a horrible husband. Twice, not once, but twice. He gives his wife to another man in order to save his life. Jacob, his name becomes synonymous with the people of God. He's called Israel. And yet, he's a pathological liar. Rahab, who who saves the spies who come into the land, but people don't make much. She was a prostitute at the time. And it doesn't say that she ceased. Peter, in the New Testament, gave two sermons and saw 8,000 people come to Christ. If you want to, in my mind, the picture of success of a pastor, that's it. If nothing else Peter did, 8,000 people. I know Peter didn't cause it. He just got to preach the gospel. And God's so blessed. He is a horrible coward when it counted. Three times he betrays his Savior that he'll end up preaching the gospel about. And not only does he lead himself astray, but Barnabas, his name means encourager. And Barnabas goes with Peter up to Antioch and joins the cowardness of Peter and the racism of Peter that Paul will have to rebuke in Galatians 2. You also have John Calvin, the hero of the Reformed faith, burns a man at the stake for simply refusing to believe. Martin Luther, that we began the message with, we have his writings. And at the end of his life, he's ranting anti-Semitic statements about the Jews. But let me tell you where the hope is in that long list. Is that if God can forgive them, he can forgive me. I love this hymn. I don't know what happened to this hymn. My guess is the music is hard to sing and it's kind of gone out of use. But the words are so amazing. The hymn is called The Love of God. And it goes like this. The love of God is greater than tongue or pen can even tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches the lowest hell. 
That's good news. That'll preach. But sin, in order to understand it, you have to understand that it's progressive. That is, you don't wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to commit adultery today. You don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to commit murder today. It starts with hundreds of previous decisions on smaller temptations that progressively lead you to adultery and murder. They accumulate. And because of that, they harden the conscience and they put calluses on your soul. I have no idea why Guns and Roses said this, but you couldn't get any more biblical than this. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do. So the little got more and more. Is that how sin works? Our story, our story starts with David neglecting his calling to be king. Verse 1 says, it is the time when kings go out to battle. Where is David supposed to be? Not there. He's supposed to be with his men. But David remains in Jerusalem, according to verse 2, and on a couch. He lives his incredibly slumbering body, goes up to the rooftop, and there he sees Bathsheba. We have got to get rid of 2,000 years of the church saying that Bathsheba entrapped David by taking a bath. That not only makes little of what David did, but it makes Bathsheba the bad guy here, and she is not. David is, and David alone. His look lingered, it says. It doesn't say the word. Here's how it says it. The woman was very beautiful. There is no way David could ever come to the conclusion that she's a beautiful woman unless he looked. And not just looked with a glance. What he failed to notice was not her beauty, but that she was someone else's. Someone else's wife and someone else's daughter. Eliam is her dad. He's one of David's mighty men. David not just knows Bathsheba and Uriah. He knows her family. Uriah is one of David's closest friends, the text tells us. And he's also one of the mighty men. The mighty men were 30 guys. 30 men who have decided that they're going to give their lives for the interests of David, the king. That is, they're going to put David's interest ahead of their own. Just 30 guys. That's why they're called the mighty men. And this woman is the child of one of them and the bride of another. One-fifteenth of his mighty men are represented by Bathsheba. And therefore, David's exploits someone else's daughter and someone else's wife. Why? Simply because he could. He's king. It says in verse 3 that David sent and inquired about this woman. He knew exactly who this woman was. It's not an accident that that she is there. He knows where his mighty men live. He knows who the families of his mighty men are. He might not know everybody that's in his army, but he knows the 30 because they have pledged their loyalty to him. 
And what we have is an, a terrible abuse of power. It says in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. In Hebrew, that word took is the same word for steal. David didn't take her like he met her at a dance and put her on the dance floor. David saw the daughter of his mighty man and the wife of one of his mighty men, and he stole her from them. But it's not just progressive, it's compounding. How do do we know that this isn't a consensual relationship? One of the lessons that you and I are learning in the 21st century in America is this. When it involves power, a superior and an inferior, there can be no true consent. And if we don't get that, then we will be accused of the same. Look at the horrible choice that she has to make. To honor her husband at the risk of losing her. He's king. And the king's word is final. There's no court to appeal to. No police to protect her. The king rules. And if the king takes her, she has two choices. And they're both horrible. Give in to him or die. And as a result of this sin, she becomes pregnant. And what happens then? We know this. The cover-up is often worse than the crime. He begins to cover it up. And the first thing he does is he sends for Uriah and gets Uriah to come and says, Hey, you're on furlough. You got a, you got a 24-hour pass. Your wife's down there at the house. You can go down there. And rather than going to her, he sleeps on the porch because he's a better man than David. David stayed home, but Uriah will not enjoy the fruits of being married while his brothers are in battle. Something that David was unwilling to do. He's not going to dishonor them. Uriah's heart is more tender than David's at this point. And so when this plan doesn't work, he has plan B. Let's just simply get rid of Uriah. He's the problem after all. Can you imagine if those 30 men had found out about what David had done to someone's daughter, to someone's wife, they couldn't trust David with their spouses and their daughters at home. It was probably as far from their thinking as they go off to battle and leaving David at home that he was a predator. John Owen says this in his book, Mortification Means Killing Sin. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let me use a different theologian, Alicia Beth Moore. She says, I'm a hazard to myself. Don't let me get me. We know her primarily as pink. You see, she recognizes something about the acorn that you and I need to recognize. That acorns can become trees. And trees can become forests. And forest becomes forest fires. They have that potential. And the most vulnerable among us are not people who see acorns, but recognize that acorns won't amount to anything. It is the gateway sin that leads to the horrors. And therefore, you and I are being called to crush the acorns that are in our hearts before it has the opportunity to become a forest fire. 
And Bruce, I just don't like all this talk about sin. I go to church to be encouraged. To err is human. Nobody is perfect. Don't be so legalistic. I want you to understand what God's doing here. He's not trying to make David or us feel horrible. He's just trying to prevent us from becoming foolish. That's what he does for Cain in Genesis 4. Cain is there with his brother and God comes to Cain and says, Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. Cain did not. And it cost Abel his life. There's a part in us. This is something that Isaac said at the very beginning. There's, there's this little part in our heart that thinks it's okay to flirt with sin, that nothing will become of it. That's why Paul warns us. He says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. So the very first thing is, you're not immune. I'm not immune. No one is immune. But you and I cannot do this alone. It won't work. What does God do when David can't see his sin? He sends a community. I'm often asked, why be a member of church? Why go to church? Why be a part of this mass of humanity? And the answer is, without community, we are already toast. Community is what comes to us and allows us to see what we cannot see. You and I are frogs in the kettles of life. And it's boiling us because someone isn't speaking. And what God does is sends a community in one man named Nathan. And Nathan tells an incredible story. I love stories and I love people who know how to tell them. And evidently Nathan knows how to tell a story. He says there's this rich man and this poor man and this rich man has it all. But a visitor comes, a guest comes in. Tradition is that you fix a meal for your guests. But he didn't want to give up one of his lambs. And so he sees a neighbor who has not just a lamb, but a, a member of the family almost. And says, I'll take that one. And we'll eat that one. Because it won't cost me anything. And David is so incensed by this act of injustice. He says, that man deserves to die. And what is Nathan doing? He's given David enough metaphorical rope to hang himself. Because at some point, he says, David, you the man. In case you were wondering who this guy is, it's you. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 18, if somebody sins, go and tell them their fault. How? We leave Galatians 6 out of the picture. If anyone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual... Restore that person gently. That's what Nathan's doing. Gently showing him his sin at great risk. We, we underestimate the risk by which Nathan is coming to David. You say, well, he's got God on his side. Yeah, but God never told him that once he points out this sin, that he'll get to live. God never says that to him. We assume that and read that in the story. Nathan is boldly going before uh, a David in announcing his sin. My guess is he's going with his knees knocking because God has not promised him that he gets to come out of this conversation with his life. It's Winston Churchill who says, criticism may not be agreeable, 
but it is necessary. It fulfills the same function as pain in the human body. It calls attention to the unhealthy state of things. You and I know it is a cruel doctor who refuses to tell the patient what's in the pathology report. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. But it was God who sent Nathan to David. You and I cannot do this alone. But this hypocrisy and this faithfulness are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're often together in the same person. In fact, we are both. Does that hurt? It's not meant to hurt. It only hurts if you fail to recognize that you're mutually both. Notice how swiftly David repents. He repents even when he didn't have to. You say, well, but God's pointing this out. He doesn't know that. He just knows Nathan's come up to him and told him about this guy and said, you're the man. And if David doesn't want to listen, he doesn't have to listen. What's the first words that David utters? I didn't read this to you, but it says, I have sinned against the Lord. Tell me more, Nathan. We fear repentance because we fear the cost. We don't repent in order to be forgiven. We repent because we are forgiven. There is forgiveness and grace, and that enables repentance. There's a lot of bad news in this passage. You ever notice that? The baby's going to die. David's going to get a very dysfunctional family from this. A couple of his boys are going to try to kill him. And he's going to have to run for his life. But the most complete picture of repentance we have in the Bible is David's. Because we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51 that we confessed earlier says, Have mercy on me, O God, your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquities. Cleanse me from my sins. And God did. How do we know that? Just a few chapters to the right in your Bibles. I don't know what to say on your iPads. I'll get that eventually. Scroll. But in 2 Samuel chapter 16, the picture is David is with his mighty men, these same 30 guys, and a fool begins to throw rocks and curse David. And what's his mighty men's response? They ask for permission from David to kill him. And this is David's response. This is how you know the completeness of repentance. It changed David. He says, maybe the Lord is speaking through him, even a fool. David receives the critique, even a fool's. That's humility. Jack Miller used to tell people when they came up and critiqued him, maybe he gave a bad sermon, maybe something else he had done. This is how he typically responded. We know that because Jack Miller has told this story so many times. It's become folklore. He would tell the person, you don't know the half of it. I'm worse than you think. And he's not being flippant. He's not saying, let's make little of this. He's saying, the worst thing that you can think about me is only half the story because you don't know it all. You see, that's humility. It's not false humility. The portrait of David's greatness is not in his perfection. He's a failure, a colossal failure at perfection but in his courage in seeing his own imperfections. 
The proof of greatness lies in being able to endure criticism without resentment. Without resentment. Here comes the good news. This is the end. It's real quick, so I don't want to go by it so fast. But there's a story behind this story. Jesus is here in this story. Where? He's the faithful soldier that dies to cover the shame. And therefore, Jesus is Uriah. He's the true Uriah. He has come to cover our shame. But he's not only Uriah in this story. He's also Bathsheba. Jesus is the true Bathsheba. And you're saying, I was tracking with you too. You said that. See, we've made this into an incredible romantic story the way we take Ruth and Boaz. There's no romance here. There's just taking and abusing. Think about how much Bathsheba had to forgive David to become his wife. He treated her as an object. He treated her as an opportunity instead of a soul. She was somebody's daughter. She was somebody else's wife. He took her. Bathsheba is the first announcing of me too. David's murder, her husband, the real love of her life. And that child, that fruit of that horrible experience dies. What did she have to do to become David's wife? She had to forgive a lot. This Friday and Saturday, we're going to offer a marriage seminar. Some of these very same themes on forgiveness and repentance are part of Paul Tripp's message about marriage. Marriage isn't about two people going in the same direction, because often we don't. Marriage, marriage is about recognizing I married a sinner and I'm a sinner. And therefore, I hurt her and she hurts me. How do you navigate those waters? Through repentance and forgiveness. Please come. You can go online and find out more. What happens to Bathsheba? She becomes pregnant again. This son is Jedediah. You know what that name means? Beloved of the Lord. We know Jedediah as Solomon. And his name means peace. Let me give you one more. And I didn't think of this. I was transcribing my notes at a meeting. I was multitasking. Maybe you think that's horrors, but I was sitting there putting a sermon onto my iPad and this guy was reading my notes. And he said, have you ever thought about verse 14? Not in this one. Usually that's a whole different message. Look, at, let me read you verse 14 of chapter 12. Nevertheless, because by the deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Have you ever thought much about that? We tend to bring it out primarily when someone is suffering and dying. When, when I first got into the ministry, I've only missed one General Assembly in 25 years, and it was the first one that I was able to go to. And because I was in this church of 5,000, they had to leave one pastor behind in case there was an emergency. Well, sure enough, there was an emergency. And so I go to the hospital because this young couple who knew before they went into the hospital that this child was not going to live long. So I get to the hospital and mom is holding her son and they're watching him labored in his breathing. 
They're getting shallower and less frequent. And so the first question she asked me is this. What did I do wrong that my child is dying? Now, I'm all of 32, and I have no answer for her. So she asked a second question. Can anything good come from this? I wish I had these answers that I could give today, but she probably was more mature and had them on her own eventually. Hear this. Unless God says so, the death of a child cannot be attributed to a specific sin. That's what's happening here. God is saying through Nathan to David that because this happened, this is going to happen. Outside of that experience, and since he has decided that he's only going to speak through his word and his spirit, nobody can claim that God told them that the reason that their child dies was because of some sin that they had done. That might be true, but there's no way on earth you ought to ever utter that to anyone else because you don't know. I don't know. It's always a result of sin in general. But unless God says different, it's not the result of sin specific. Do you remember the story of the blind man that's brought to Jesus? They, they say, he's blind, he's been blind a long time. Was it his parents' fault or was it this guy's fault? You remember what Jesus said? It's pithy. It's neither his parents' sin nor his sin. I think that's important. That not everything that happens to us is connected to a specific sin. But it is connected to sin. How about the other question, the, the one that really breaks your heart? Can anything good come from the death of this child? Romans eight twenty eight is the one that's often quoted by Christians when people lose a loved one. And we know that for those who love God, are all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... Hear this. The death of a child is never good. We are lying when we tell someone that this is good. Then where is the good? The good is in the reversal of the curse, which is what he's talking about in Romans 8. He's been talking about it since verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus all the way where all of creation is groaning for its redemption and to verse 28 when he says, even this will be worked for the good. That is the reversal of the curse. This is Pro-Life Sunday, if you don't know. That means when Christians pray and long for a day when children who are not wanted die. God is promising in Romans 8.28 that when he reverses the curse... There will be no more babies who die. Anywhere. Where does David take his grief? If we had time to read the rest of chapter 12, he takes it to worship. He takes it to the presence of God. The place for grief is with the person who watched his own son die. To reverse the curse. It seems to me that the only sense you can make out of this is that 
David's son was born to die. And so not only is Uriah, or Jesus the true Uriah, not only is Jesus the true Bathsheba, but Jesus is the true son who was born to die. That's why Jesus came. Because you couldn't die and live. Your sins couldn't be forgiven no matter how much you repented unless Jesus came to die. And that was his purpose. And so Uriah, I mean, David's son is pointing to the one Jesus who will come and die for our sins in order to set us free. A few weeks ago, I'll end on this. A few weeks ago, I made available some of my notes and people have emailed me that they would like it on a regular basis. There's no way to turn my notes into something that's readable. But I can do this. I can give you a summary with all the quotes and all of the questions and thoughts that are with them. And if you want that on a regular basis, just email me or email the office and we'll create a list and I can send that out to you. There was so much in here in this passage that we need to hear, that I need to hear. I don't want you to miss the beauty that the curse has been reversed. No more babies who die. That's our future. That's what the woman in the hospital needed to hear. Not that, not that something good was going to come out of this, but something good is coming out of the death that her son pointed to. Jesus. That's what we need to hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people of yours who have gathered here to hear from you. I, I pray that you take all the words that I've used, many of them, and you filter the ones that matter, the ones from you, and that speak to our soul, that heal our soul, and do that for all of us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.